Advent, we've been looking at the story of Jesus Christ through the Gospel of Luke. Luke is one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all tell the story in slightly different ways, but they all align. All of the, the facts are there. But if you were to ask four people after our worship service today to write down exactly what happened, you'd hear a lot of the same things, but said in slightly different ways, right? So we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. We've been doing that through December, and we're going to continue on through January, February, and March as it kind of aligns with what our uh, youth Bible quizzers are going to be studying over the next couple of months, too. So we're, we're deeply and, and firmly rooted in this story of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. Today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 3. And so I'd like to read um, those chapters before we dismiss the kids of the children's church. Here is Luke chapter 3, and it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Phil, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized, said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, we, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 3. Before we dive into it any further, I would like to invite the children to come forward. We have children's church today for kids between four years old and first grade. And so if you guys are ready for children's church, why don't you come forward with me and, and we'll pray and, and then uh, you guys can be dismissed. How's it going today, guys? Going pretty good? All right. Let me just ask a quick question. How many of you had a good Christmas? Raise your hand if you had a good Christmas. 
That's just about all of you except for the two boys looking at the Bible, and that's just fine. That's just fine. Now, a second question. How many of you are so excited to go back to school this week? All right. That's better than I thought. <laughs> that's better than I thought. Well, I'm glad you guys are here, and I'm excited that you're here at church, and I'm excited that Children's Church is about ready to start. What about you? Are you ready? All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're going to go anyway, right? <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray. And then you guys can go to Children's Church. Lord, I thank you for these boys and girls. Lord, it's been quite a week. We've had good things happen. We've had hard things happen. And every one of us can tell stories about what you've been up to. But Lord, I pray that today, all of us here in this room can, can focus in on your word and learn what it says and live it. And I pray for these boys and girls as they go to Children's Church that they can focus in on your word and learn what it says and live it. Lord, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, boys and girls. I like the Christmas tree. You like the Christmas tree? Well, good. How many of you like the Christmas tree? I want an informal poll. How many of you have cleaned out the house, all the Christmas stuff is gone, and you are ready You are ready to move on? One, two, three. So a pastor and an elder, and, and some of the ladies in the front. How many of you still have Christmas stuff up? You're just kind of squeezing out the last little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been talking through the month of December about how we're looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, right? We believe that Christ is going to come back. As the Bible says that he will, he's going to set all things right, and we're going to have, those who are believers are going to have a place in heaven with him for eternity. So we're looking forward to that, but we're also kind of stuck in the past a bit as we are celebrating the birth of that Savior, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago. And so we've been in this in-between spot, and does anything say in-between, like this week, between Christmas and New Year's, right? Some of you have moved on. You've, you've just frankly had enough. No more Christmas songs. No more Christmas decorations. Christmas food, sure. But, you know, all the other decorations be done with it. Others of us are still kind of holding on because, well, it's been a good season. Or, frankly, we just haven't decided to clean anything up yet. But we're in this in-between spot, right? And as we continue on, I mean, we're kind of getting scripturally speaking, we're getting beyond the Christmas story. We're getting beyond the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 tells about the events right around his birth, and then there's just a few sentences in Luke chapter 2 near the end about what happened to Jesus when he was about 12 years old at the temple. Just a short story. It's really the only account that we have of his childhood. What we know about Jesus from the Gospel of Luke is a lot of events around his birth, a quick story when he was 12, and then a whole long account of things that happened when he was in his early 30s leading up to his death. And so right now we're kind of getting into this chapter of Jesus' life where he is an adult, he's about 30 years old, he's coming onto the scene, and he's going to become known as the Son of God in a way that he hadn't been known before. And it's interesting here how Luke sets the story, sets the stage, and gives a lot of historical context. And we're actually going to dive into some of these names here before we go into the rest of Luke chapter 3, because there's an important thing that I think Luke is trying to tell us as we study the Bible today. So Luke chapter 3, verse 1, we're given a time, right? It's in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So this is happening at a particular time. 
And there are these names. It's, it's happening among the time of these names of Tiberius Caesar and Pontius Pilate, who's the governor of Judea, Herod, who's the tetrarch of Galilee, Philip, the tetrarch of the region of Idaria and Trachonitis, Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. So these men are ruling. They are in power. It's at a particular time in a particular region. It's during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So we get some religious context. We see what's happening among the Jews. And we're told that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So we have the who and the what and the where and the when. Very specific stuff. This John, he was a real man among real men in a real place doing real things. And I'd like to talk about who these guys are. And so if you have your Bible with you, if you have it on a phone or, or some of your um, chairs in front of you have a brown Bible underneath, or, or maybe you brought yours along like some of the kids in our children's church huddle did, look at Luke chapter 3 because we're going to camp out here for a bit. I want to tell you about these guys because the stories here are fantastic. The first one named in Luke 3.1 is a guy named Tiberius Caesar. Some of you know the name Caesar Augustus. He was the ruler of Rome and Tiberius Caesar is his stepson. So Caesar Augustus ruled over Rome. Uh, Augustus was one of those names that meant that he was supposed to be worshipped. He thought and people around him thought that the Caesar was divine. So there was Caesar Augustus, but he's been replaced now by a fellow named Tiberius Caesar. And Tiberius Caesar is the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. It's almost like starting out a story about a man by saying, well, that was in the years when Joe Biden was president, or Trump was president, or, or Obama was president, or Bush was president. It's setting the stage. This is who was the big shot, Tiberius Caesar. It's in the 15th year of his reign. And Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. This is the next highest ruling officer in the land after Tiberius Caesar. Now, this Pontius Pilate was appointed to be the governor by Tiberius. He was a Roman representative in this land of the Jews, and he was hated by the Jews. Pontius Pilate, you're going to hear more about him as the story unfolds over the next couple of months. But he's the governor of Judea underneath Tiberius Caesar, and he's trying to rule over a land that is populated by Jewish folks who hate him, and he hates them. But he's a politician. He's been working for years, and he will work for years just to try to keep his power. That's Tiberius Caesar. That's Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And then we get these characters. There, there's a Herod, and there's a Philip, and there's a Lysanias. They're called tetrarchs. There's three tetrarchs, where if you are a numbers kind of person, that might not make sense, because what number does the word tetrarch point to? Four. Any of you ever play Tetris? Do you know that game? You ever get sucked in? You play it for a while, you play it for some days, you go to bed at night and you can still see the blocks falling in your eyes. If some of you children of the 90s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In the real and official game of Tetris, each shape has how many blocks in it? Four, right? Tetris, tet, four. But now we have three fellows who are called tetrarchs, Herod, Philip, and Lysanias. What is the deal? Well, again, a little bit more history because we've got these names in here. Herod, there's a couple of Herods in Scripture. There's a couple of Herods, in fact, in the book of Luke. We need to keep them straight. The earliest Herod was Herod the Great. This is the one who was in place when Jesus was born. 
This is the fellow who was the governor of the region. This is the one who, who when the wise men kind of sidestepped him and wouldn't tell him exactly where this new child, the king of the Jews, was born. He had all the children in the region of Jesus' birth, all the boys, two years old and younger, all of them exterminated, killed, so that he could wipe out any threat to his throne. That was Herod the Great. He came before these three tetrarchs. Herod the Great's an interesting fellow. Racially, he was Arabian. His father was an Arab from a region called Idumea. His mother was Arabian. So his parents were both Arabians. That was something that maybe for us kind of gets lost in the evening news. But that was his race. That was the people that he came from in that region of a place that we now call the Middle East. So racially, he was an Arab, but Herod the Great, it was interesting, religiously, he was a Jew. In 135 BC, over 100 years before Jesus Christ, there was a fellow, a Jewish fellow, his name was Hyrcanus. And Hyrcanus conquered the Idumeans. That's where Herod the Great's family was from. This Jewish ruler named Hyrcanus conquered the Idumeans and made them become Jews on the pain of death. So 135 years before Christ, Hyrcanus conquered the Idumeans, where Herod's parents are from, and made them become Jews or else they would die. And Hyrcanus made Herod the Great's grandfather the governor of the province. Are you following along here? Do you see how there could be some political problems? Sometimes we think that political problems in the Middle East are a new thing. No, my friends. No, here is Herod the Great. Racially, he's an Arab. Religiously, he's a Jew. In fact, this Herod began to rebuild the great temple that would be a centerpiece of Jesus' ministry about 20 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Herod, an Arab, religiously a Jew. Culturally, he was Greek. Greek was the language that Herod would have learned growing up. He worked hard to try to make Jerusalem a Greek city, which was part of the reason why the Jews hated his rule so much. So he's an Arab. Religiously, he's a Jew. Culturally, he's a Greek. Politically, he's Roman. Another interesting story about Herod the Great. You've heard of Antony and Cleopatra? Antony. Anth different way of saying Anthony, I guess. Antony and Cleopatra. They were, they were living just a little bit before the time of Jesus Christ. And this Herod the Great here, he was he was friends with Antony and Cleopatra and tried to help them overthrow Caesar Augustus, the ruler of Rome. But Caesar Augustus defeated Antony and Cleopatra and their friend, Herod. And so Herod, Herod went to Caesar. He took off his crown and he went in front of Caesar and he said, Caesar, what I ask you to consider is not whose friend I was, but what a good friend I was. You get the picture here. This Herod the Great, he's, he's a son of Arabian parents. Religiously, he's a Jew. Culturally, he loves everything Greek. And now he's coming to the Roman Caesar who has just defeated him and his allies. And he comes and he says, yep, I was their friend. You wiped them out. But don't hold that against me. Just look at my loyalty to them. And Caesar told him to put his crown back on and go home and rule. That's the kind of politician Herod the Great was. He was complex and he was ruthless. Remember, he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under. We know that from Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Herod had his wives and his sons killed if he thought they were getting too close to him. 
His last order as he was dying, his body was unhealthy. His last order was to have his troops arrest thousands of notable people from his kingdom, then execute them on the day of his death so that someone would mourn because he knew that no one would weep for him. That is Herod the Great. He was ruling at the time that Jesus, our Savior, came to redeem the sins of the world. Jesus was born into this man's territory, but this man didn't live forever. Soon after the birth of Jesus, Herod died, and his kingdom was divided up four ways. And the four rulers of that kingdom would be tetrarchs. But he only had three sons he trusted One was named Archelaus, one was named Antipas, one was named Philip. Archelaus and Philip each got one-fourth of Herod the Great, that ruthless politician. Philip and Archelaus each got one-fourth of his kingdom, but for reasons that I don't understand. Herod Antipas got half the kingdom, three men ruling four territories. It's interesting. It's interesting to see how these, well, we'll get into that in a minute. Turns out that of these tetrarchs, Archelaus was so terrible that he was removed from being a ruler after about 10 years, and Pilate was a governor who was put in place to take care of that area. And now we've got Pilate ruling over an area, and then we've got these other tetrarchs, Philip, Antipas, who took on the name Herod. Herod Antipas, by the way, is the Herod that keeps popping up. He ruled over the area for 40 years. Philip, another son of Herod the Great, brother to Archelaus and Antipas, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis. He's a former husband of Herodias who's now married to his brother. Oh, it's a big story, but what we know from Luke is that we have these particular fellows in a particular place at a particular time. Not only that, but in the religious world, there's Annas and Caiaphas. They weren't priests at the same time, but they're listed here together. In fact, one is the father-in-law, the other is the son-in-law, and they were priests who kind of overlapped, and many people think that Annas had a huge impact on Caiaphas, and this is why they're put together. Caiaphas is the one who said in John 11 that Jesus was getting too powerful, and, and we sang about Lazarus this morning. Do you remember we, we had this song about Lazarus coming back from the dead? Well, after Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave, and I know we're bouncing all around in these 30 or so years of history, but after Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave, people from all over Israel were beginning to believe in Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, this is John 11, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. But one of the chief priests, Caiaphas, again, this is the Caiaphas that's mentioned in Luke chapter 3, now in John chapter 11. Caiaphas, who was a high priest, said, you all know nothing, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. There he stayed with the disciples. So Jesus Christ ended up kind of being chased out of town by this Caiaphas who's listed here in Luke chapter 3 when John the Baptist has the word of God come to him. Luke 3 verse 2, in the midst of all this, all the schemers and all the dreamers and all the politics and all the wars and all the moving around, the word of God came to John. 
the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John, the son of Zechariah, and Elizabeth. You remember hearing about him, right? When we, when we read about John a few weeks ago, when we read about Elizabeth miraculously becoming pregnant, and Zechariah, he was then struck dumb, not able to speak. It said there in, in Luke chapter 2 that his parents were advanced in years. And so now, this John, whose parents probably died when he was quite young, he's been in the wilderness, and in the midst of this cast of characters, do you see the picture that Luke has painted? Important people, Caesars and Herods and brothers and tetrarchs, and you've got the high priests and all that. They're all doing their thing, but where does the word of God come to? This young orphan in the wilderness. A guy who's in his early 30s. He's not a guy who has a following. He's not a guy who has a platform. But the word of God came to John. What did he do with it? Luke 3, 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism, that sounds good to us, right? You've been here before. We, we do baptisms here at our church. When a person makes a proclamation of faith, they say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And we've given them some instruction to understand what that believes and what, what God expects and hopes for from us and what God is doing in us. Then we baptize people. So many of you have been baptized. That's a bit of a normal thing for us here at the church. But baptism was not a normal thing for Jewish people, especially before the time of Jesus. Remember, John is announcing all of this, proclaiming all of this. Jesus is about the same age. They're both about 30 years old. But Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. Jesus hasn't risen from the grave yet. There's a lot of that stuff that's still a couple of years in the future. So John is out proclaiming a baptism of repentance, which Jews didn't often do. And he's telling people that, that this is part of the forgiveness of sins. In Isaiah 55, one of the old prophecies, it says to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is what John is proclaiming. He's saying, people, you can cry out to God. People, if you're feeling something stirring inside of you, respond to the Lord. Come and be baptized for repentance and the forgiveness of sins because even though for the Jewish people baptism wasn't common, Jews would often baptize Gentiles. If you had a person who was not Jewish, but they came to the Jewish faith, oftentimes the Jews would say, okay, well, we're going to kind of wash you clean, and now you can be brought in to this Jewish faith. That was pretty common. And so now you've got these Jewish people coming out. They're getting baptized. They're, they're basically admitting, hey, I'm no better than anybody else. I'm, I'm, I'm almost as if a person who's never known the Lord coming into faith. And John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says that he's traveling in the wilderness region around the Jordan. Have any of you been in the wilderness region around the Jordan River? Can you picture it? Some of you can, right? Is there anything, Gerald and Vicki, I'm sorry, I'm looking at you guys because I know you've been there very recently. Is there anything in that wilderness region that makes you say, hey, let's go hang out there for a while? No, it, it's a desert, ugly spot unless you just happen to love, you know, dry, hot, and uncomfortable. That's where John is hanging out and people are coming to him, not to see some show, because there's not much of a show, it's just people getting baptized. And not to hear some famous fellow, because John, he's brand new at this. The word of the Lord has just come to him. But God is doing something out in the wilderness among, among these people. 
And John's telling them, look, be baptized for repentance, for the forgiveness of your sins. And, and so many people realized they needed it. Now, not everybody, not everybody. We can see John's response. It's written in the book of Isaiah, and, and Ross read it earlier. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked way shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. All the flesh shall see the salvation of God. Straightening the curves, flattening the hills. John says, I'm telling you about the one who's going to come and make all things right. John didn't yet really fully know and understand who the Messiah was, it seems, even though in his mother's womb he leapt at Jesus' presence. But John said to the crowds that came out to him, Luke chapter 3, verse 7, he said to the crowds that came to be baptized him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I might have to try that next time. Next time we're outside baptizing, you're like, you brood of vipers! Who warned you to come and be? <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like welcoming language, is it? And yet people keep coming out to this man in the wilderness. There must be something there, something real, something deep, or else why would anyone go out to be yelled at? But he says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he doesn't say, I'm not going to baptize you. He doesn't say, go back home. Do you see the challenge? Here's the challenge. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Y'all are a bunch of snakes. You're filthy people from a region of filthy people. But now you're here. So change. You can respond to God. You can hear God's word. You can repent. You can turn from that. And not just repenting, but you can bear fruit with this. This is the charge, right? And he warns them. He says, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He says, no, no, no. Your, your genetics have nothing to do with this. God can raise up more sons for Abraham. Bring forth fruit of repentance. Your eternity is on the line. You know, we understand this, don't we? Over time, over time, can't you see who a person is? I mean, sometimes we're fooled. Sometimes in a moment, there's a person that can give us a great first impression. Or if they're really good or really slick or really polished, or if we're just kind of enamored with them, that first impression might be able to stretch onto a couple meetings, a couple dates, a couple weeks. But over time, we can see who a person is, right? Why? Because we can tell whether there are fruits from repentance. Fruit can be seen. It's hard for us to see each other's hearts. But what is John saying to these folks? He's saying, okay, you're saying you've repented. Really? Is there any fruit to show for it? How many of you, how many of you have been stuck in that terrible spot where somebody was not who you thought they were? And you realize, whoa, I, I, gotta, I gotta get out of this business deal. I'm not stepping into partnership with them. Or you're saying, I've got to put some boundaries on this friendship because this is getting, I'm starting to see who they are and, and I think this is getting a little bit weird. 
How many of you have ever said, I'm not playing sports with that person ever again because I get along with them really well, but when they are on the field, they are a monster, and I don't want to be part of it, right? Now, that's all just like the low stakes stuff. How many of you have been in deep personal relationships, and you realize this person was not who you thought they were? See, over time, though, eventually we all can see a person's faith. We can see what a person believes about God over time. We can see what a person believes about themselves. We can see what a person believes about their sin and their forgiveness and their hope. We can see whether somebody's repented. This is what John's talking about. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Those fruits, and and it needs to be said, and you'll see this get a little bit clearer in the next couple of verses. And in fact, it's hammered over and over, especially by Paul in the rest of Scripture. Those fruits are not the things that save us. Let's be very clear, okay? We are not saved. We're not suddenly like on God's good graces, and we're not forgiven because of all the great and amazing things that we do. But I think it's very clear from John and and in the rest of the Scripture that, that when we are saved by God, When we respond to whatever it is that God does in us and we say, yes, Lord, I believe in you. Please forgive me. I'm turning to you. I'm letting you be my Lord and Savior. I'm asking you, please be my Lord and Savior. And when God saves us, then there is fruit that comes from that. Our fruit is a sign of our salvation. Our fruit is not the reason for our salvation. Let's be very clear about that. And here's the danger that I see in some churches, and I think I've fallen into this sometimes, and I think you have too. The danger is that when we emphasize that our salvation is about our faith, and it's not on our works, the danger is that then we throw out the works altogether as if they don't matter. We say, well, it's all about faith, and I want to say, yes, salvation is all about faith, but what does faith have with it? Well, repentance has fruit with it, right? And if you are saved and if you are actually living for God, there will be an ethic that comes out of that. There will be a desire to live for the Lord that comes out of that. We make mistakes and Christians fall and we have have things that we regret that even when we are faithful Christian people, we, we err and we commit sins, but there should be some sign of some salvation. John is saying, crowd, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so the crowd's asking, okay, what do we do? And so he answered them, verse 11, whoever has two tunics, this is two coats, two jackets, okay? Whoever has two, share it with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Basic stuff. A basic message from a basic man out in the wilderness talking to these people. And and by the way, this would have been a pretty good message if you're out in the wilderness because it gets chilly out there. And if you've got two coats and you're in the wilderness and there's somebody shivering beside you with none, doesn't it make sense? That if you truly are a generous, godly, caring, loving person that, well, here, take one. You know, it's like wearing gloves with mittens over top. Who does that and doesn't tell their friend? You'd have to be really dumb to do that kind of thing. But John answered them. He said, whoever has two tunics, share it with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Again, a great picture for somebody who's out in the wilderness. There's no McDonald's out there, let alone good choices. We're out here in the wilderness. Hey, if you've got an extra coat, give it to the cold person beside you. If you've got food, give it to the person beside you. This isn't like hypothetical stuff. He says, live, show fruits of repentance. That's a general answer for the crowd who ask him 
a simple question, what shall we do? But tax collectors, it gets more specific. Verse 12, tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to him, collect no more than you're authorized to do. That's a good message for today, isn't it? How many of you, this is the last day of the year for a lot of folks who are kind of normal, regular, earning money kind of folks. How many of you over the next couple months are gonna be filling out your paperwork and you're gonna be looking closely so that nobody is trying to take from you more than they are authorized to do? How many of you are suspicious that somebody might try to? John says, tax collectors, don't steal. Don't collect more than you're supposed to do. Simple instructions. Soldiers ask him, and us, what shall we do? He said to them, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. Soldiers at that time, they had station, they had power, they had buddies, they had weapons. Soldiers could go, they could, they could beat up people, they could hold things for ransom, they could intimidate anybody who wanted to. John says, don't do that. Why? Well, because if you're actually repenting, if you're actually turning away from your sins and turning towards God, wouldn't you think that you should now be honest? That you should be loving and caring and generous? It says in verse 15, as the people were in expectation, they've asked them what they should do and the tax collectors had their question and the soldiers had their question. The people were in expectation, questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ because they're waiting. Remember, at this time, it's been 400 years since there's been a real strong, powerful word from God through a prophet. And now they're hearing from the voice of this man out in the wilderness. They're saying, is this the Messiah? John answered them all saying, look, I'm baptizing you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in the fire. See, anybody can baptize with water. I've done it. Some of you have done it, right? What's it take to baptize with water? A person who wants to be baptized and some water. John says, that's what we're doing here. We're making a commitment to Jesus. We're repenting. Actually, he's making a commitment to the Lord. Jesus is not specifically on the scene as Jesus yet, right? John is saying, I'm baptizing you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's talking about who is going to be the Messiah. He says, I'm baptizing you with water. But the one who's coming, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that's a show. That's something different. That's something powerful. That's something that, God, that John can't conjure up that I can't either. John is saying that the Christ who is coming will bring the miraculous, and I can't even untie his shoes. Have any of you ever played sports against somebody who was truly great at that sport? I know, I, I, for, forgive me, I, I go to a lot of sports analogies, but have any of you ever played in, in eighth grade or ninth grade or 12th grade against somebody who eventually went pro or maybe played division one in college? There is just something about some people that when it comes to whatever their sport is, I remember we had a guy at, at Slanko in my grade who was, uh, who was a great baseball player and um, was drafted in the third round of the, uh, of the Major League Baseball draft and uh, went on and played some minor league ball, and, and he, was, he was the guy that could just do it. And he worked incredibly hard at it, but I mean, he could just throw a ball. We played dodgeball in gym class, and everybody would back up. He had to have a special line for him. He, and, and you'd catch the ball and fall over, and, and he wasn't even trying. Have you ever played sports against somebody like that? Or maybe if you really need to imagine, remember when you were seven playing against dad, and dad tried. Do you know that helpless kind of feeling? And 
And later on in life, when you're not trying to compete anymore, you have that admiration that says, I couldn't even carry that guy's anything. Not even worthy to untie his shoes. This is John. John says, look, you've all come out here, and I'm baptizing, and I'm doing what God has called me to do, but do you understand, people, that there is somebody coming who can just, he can just do it all. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. He says, this guy is coming, this Savior is coming, this Messiah is coming, he's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he uses some words that might be tough for some of us. In verse 17, his winnowing fork. It's kind of like a, a pitchforkish type of thing. Didn't have combines back in those days to drive through the fields. You brought in the grain, you brought in all the stalks, and you, you kind of threshed stuff out until you got the grain. Jesus, this Christ, is going to have a winnowing fork. It separates out the good grain from the junk. And he's going to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, what belongs to God will come to God, and the rest is going to burn. This is not light language. John is saying, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, because there's someone coming that's just going to be so much more amazing with me, and he's not just a friendly guy. He is the Lord. And for those who reject him, for those who are chaffed, there will be burning with unquenchable fire. And it says in verse 18, with many other exhortations, John preached the good news to the people. Exhortations, urging, pleading, crying out. And then to wrap up the story, these last two verses, very interesting that Luke kind of puts back a little bit of context. Herod the Tetrarch. So this is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great is dead, and he's divided up his kingdom four ways, and now three of his boys are running these four little kingdoms, and there's governors in there and all kinds of stuff. Herod the Tetrarch, one of the sons, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. See, church, what we need to remember and what we are probably going to see is that the world can only handle so much truth before it tries to silence you. You and I have been very fortunate. You and I have been very fortunate that most of the pain that we receive in sharing the gospel comes from ourselves. We feel embarrassed. We feel nervous. We feel afraid. Sometimes you and I may receive ridicule or disdain or dismissal from the people that we're trying to talk to, but rarely have you and I experienced persecution. John has been speaking such truth that he's been put in jail, and here's the story. This comes out of Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to wrap up with this, so, so sit tight. We're, we're almost there, just trying to land the plane. In Matthew chapter 14, it tells the backstory that Luke doesn't get into. Luke has other things to talk about. But Matthew tells the story that Herod, one of the Tetrarchs, had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. This is Matthew 14, starting in verse 3. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So in other words, Philip, one of the Tetrarchs, his brother, was married to a woman named Herodias. I don't know why we have to have a Herod the Great and a Herod the Son and a Herodias who's a lady married. I don't get it either, but these are their names. And so Philip, one of the rulers, is married to a woman named Herodias. 
But after a while, Herodias gets tired of Philip and decides she wants his brother, Herod, instead. And Herod wants her too. So she leaves her brother Philip to rule over here in his little tetrarch and goes to Herod, who's more powerful, has more territory, and she lives with him, has children with him, and lives in his little kingdom. And John said, no, no, you can't do that. What's this back and forth with brothers? This is what Matthew tells us. It sounds like something that could be happening right now, doesn't it? This is 2,000 years ago. You want to live in the good old days, good luck finding them. Herod had arrested John because of this whole Herodias, Philip, Herod thing. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. It says in Matthew 14, verse 5, that Herod actually wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of all the people because they considered John a prophet. Remember, they were all flocking out to the wilderness to see him. And in Matthew 14, verse 6, it says that on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, so his wife's daughter, Is it his daughter too? I'm not sure because Herodias has been in a number of marriages at this point. But the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod, her stepdad, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Oh, stepdaughter, you danced so nice. What do you want? That's weird. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. Also weird. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. John's head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who gave it to her mother. That's Herodias. That's Herod. These are the characters John is speaking to, and this is the world that Jesus came to. God said, I love the world so much that even in all of that mess, I will send my son so that whoever believe in him don't have to perish. They they don't have to be under all that stuff forever. That doesn't have to be their reality forever so that whoever believe in him shall have eternal life. But here's John, just told too much truth. He wouldn't keep his mouth shut, didn't leave well enough alone, and it got him killed. And then As we see the gospel unfold, as you'll see next week and through the rest of January, February, and March, we're going to see how this event around John and Herodias and Herod and all that kind of stuff launches Jesus into his public ministry, and everything changes forever because people are put to the decision to say, who now is this Jesus? This one who would live a perfect life, who would die on a cross, who would rise from the grave and show himself to hundreds Jesus came, and John spoke in a dirty, dark, filthy, broken world. Is ours much different? I mean, you and I, you and I, if we were to take a couple minutes, we could could tell some incredible testimonies of the things that God has been doing in 2023, right? As Ross alluded to, it's been a tough year in a lot of ways. But how many of you have had at least one blessing? But those blessings don't come from our world, do they? Where do your blessings come from? They, they come from our Lord. See, God is working despite the darkness of this world. The, the world then, broken and filthy, people in places of power who should have known better, working their little plans to get what they want, 
It's the same today. And it's going to be the same in 2024. And it's going to be the same until Jesus comes back again. What do we do? Well, we make sure that we don't become a brood of vipers. Just scurrying to the high ground because we see things getting worse. We make sure that our hearts are actually really aligned toward Jesus. Not turn backward towards our sin and all that stuff that we dreamt of in the past. No, turning our backs on our sin. We put off our old self and we live for Christ now. And as John challenged those people, I wonder, I wonder if we can produce fruits in keeping with repentance. Not for a show, not, not to try to earn something, but to simply respond to the love of our God by saying, yes, God, I will live for you. Yes, God, I, I will follow your standards. I will, I'll give my coat to the guy who needs it. I'll give some food to the person who needs it. I'll give a house, I'll give a room, I'll give a job, I'll give a car, I'll give a kind word to the person who needs it, producing fruits in keeping with repentance. In this place today, here in December 31st, looking back on 2023, looking forward to 2024, is there stuff in your past that you need to repent of? And how can you walk into your future producing good fruit in keeping with that repentance? The challenge came from John then, and it's just as real for us today. Church, are we going to be the church? Or are we just going to play around and be a, be a brood of vipers, going to, going to where things are hopping and just trying to blend in? I want to be better than that. Don't you? Can we pray together? Thank you, Lord, for speaking to John in the wilderness. For providing him with this message that still resounds for us today. Thank you, Lord, for being so clear with us that we need to leave our sin behind and that, that when we turn to you and we repent, you are faithful and just and you will forgive us. Thank you, Lord, for speaking. Jesus, you are right now seated at the right hand of your Father. Jesus, we pray to you as well, and I say thank you for coming. You came into a dark world. You lived in a filthy place among wretched people. Jesus, you loved us enough to live for us and to die for us. Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, cover us today with your blood so that we can be made new and whiter than snow. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, please come to this room today and, and touch our hearts. Lord, for those of us who, who are saved and those of us who know you, Holy Spirit, would you fill us up in such a way that we can indeed produce fruits in keeping with repentance, that we can, that we can love the world well. And Holy Spirit, would you please move in this room today there are folks in this room who haven't, haven't decided to follow Jesus yet, who haven't repented, who are, who are still kind of holding on to some of that old junk. Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you move in such a way that everyone in this place would, would let go of their sins, find their salvation in Jesus, and then live, live to be more like Jesus? Holy Spirit, this is our prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we love you. And we pray to you in the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
Church, would you, uh, would you stand and, and sing a closing song with us today? Uh, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not, let us not serve any other. Can we sing?